we're going to be picking it up in uh, verse 33 for tonight. Journaling through the journey. There's just good stuff here. This, the central focus, obviously, in Psalm 119 is the Word of God. And so most of us have discovered that it is the Word of God that pertains to and surprises us where it meets us around every corner, every standing that we pause in our walk. The Word of God is there. I think that every Sunday, though I should not be surprised, I have been surprised of how many people will say to me or that I hear others who are linked with them say, how did you know about that? And I remembered that that was something that I would hear from my pastor of what people would say. And the answer is, I don't. But God does, and through the word that's being taught, he's meeting you at your place of need. That need may be corrective, it may be comforting, it may be prophetic, a word that is being spoken to give you hope, to go the distance, to believe, and to trust as you started on your journey. But in some manner, you believed in a lie. And that lie certainly is what the enemy endeavors to do. But sometimes we can simply doubt God and lie to ourselves. We can do that in a manner in which everything that was so encouraging to us all of a sudden just doesn't have that effect on us. But that's not God's fault, and that's why when we journal through the journey, we're we're really saying the word is central to me staying focused and I will go back and visit my journal and I will begin to pen the things that the Lord is showing me presently and you hang on to it. So 33 right now is simply going to be a part three to as far as we can get. I'm going to see how far we can move through this. And we'll still be tagging the familiar terms that we looked at As well, a couple of weeks ago, the law will come up again, testimonies and precepts. There'll be one that has simile or a likening to one of the words that we have discovered, statutes, and that word will be found in the word ordinances. We'll look at what that means, commandments and judgments. So these words are going to be frequently appearing, and when necessary, I'll redefine them. Teach me, O Lord, verse 33 says, the way of your statutes. The statutes are the binding force of God. We might be able to say, I think truly, that he holds us together, but he does so also in a manner that keeps us from getting unraveled. And he does that through the work of his spirit and the power of his word. It's binding. He does it through covenantial pledges that he has made to us or that we make to one another. The one thing we know about us is we easily can break our promises. God never does. And so when he speaks promises, it's a binding force that he will not deny himself of satisfying in our life. So at what time does that binding force lose its grip on you? Well, when you lose your grip on God, 
then the binding force of God may be perceived as that which is relinquished, but it's not God's fault. It always has to come back to us. God has a binding force in his precepts. It's why we are amazed at what comes to pass when we live a life of belief and expressed faith. So most of us do end up taking a few more footsteps than we thought we would need to. We get a few more wrinkles, some bruises come into that. Hearts break. We move across, I suppose, on a bridge that we might see as the cross over troubled waters. But God is with us. And so when this is being pronounced, teach me, that's instructions. I do know people that throw out the instructions, not the word of God, but in the area of mechanics and industry. They, they're gifted. They know how machines and so forth work. Well, God, though, knows how we work because he's designed us. So where some may have the liberty to toss out the directions, the instructions, we ought not do that with this, which is our manual. It just doesn't work that well for us because then we come up with our own plans and we always miss something that was intended to put it all together. So this is actually an imperative. When this is being penned, the conversation is, Lord, in the way that I know of myself, I'm asking for you to assert yourself to teach me. And sometimes as students, it's difficult to be assertive because actually we just want to pass with the least amount of effort that we can. And I shared that before. When I first learned how to write reports, I'd go to the end of the book and see what the publishing company said about the author. And what the author highlighted, and I change a few words, and sure enough, the teacher always knew. And then when I became a teacher, I always knew. I could ask probing questions, which then would reveal from that student, ah, you did what I did, like many years ago. And it wasn't to accuse them, it was to literally identify. I know what that's like. And so this is saying, instruct me, teach me the way of your statutes, that binding force that keeps me in them and that comforts me because you're not going to let go of me. And I shall keep it to the end. There was a pastor, I believe it was Vernon J. J. Vernon McGee, who said, when you receive a promise from God, you clutch it and you take it to the grave with you. That was pretty pretty awesome as a statement, meaning that I'm not letting go of it, and if it's to the grave, it comes with me. The idea there is that it doesn't invalidate it. It's just going to have a glorious revelation in the twinkling of an eye. But that kind of tenacity is very impressive to me, that we would appeal to God to teach us, to instruct us, we're not going to throw the manual out. And while in that manual, everything that relates to my life will be kept in a grip that will go to the grave with me if necessary, without doubting 
for one minute that God will not satisfy it even upon my last breath. I like what he said. Give me understanding and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. We talked about a divided heart last week. So we're not to have a divided heart, but we sure have a divided nation and we sure have a division within churches. We have divisions within homes and relationships. But fundamentally that happens because we lose spiritual fundamentals and it erodes with compromise and it erodes with concessions. Well, we're not to comp compromise, but we do. We're not to concede, but we do. And so this brings us back to this appeal to give me understanding. See, sometimes it's very easy for us to say, gimme, 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 gimme. And that can be anchored very spiritually. You have not because you ask not. And then we're also told in that same passage, and part of that is because you ask amiss. So how is it that we ask what in fact is God's pleasure to give us, and how do we ask in such a way that it's not amiss? And how do we ask it all when we're afraid that maybe what we are going to ask is outside of the will of God? And I don't have necessarily anything except to say that Jesus even would commit his disciples to seek and ask and knock and knock and seek and ask. You can do it in any order. The question will be, will you do it? And will you do it on the petition that there is understanding that you've asked God to give you? What happens when there's a delay? Do you have understanding as to why? And are you willing to subject yourself to the agony of patience which is being worked into your character upon the premise that you've asked God, give me understanding. Many things I want to ask you to give me, Lord, but what value is it if I do not have understanding about it? And very often in the youthfulness of spiritual life, God begins to test the request that you make. Not that he will not satisfy it, but he's maturing your character in the process of asking for it so that you will not ask amiss, nor will you carelessly handle it once it's given. So we, we learn these things in this process of appeal and how to rightly ask that we ask first for understanding to keep the law of God, which again are the teachings or the directives of the Lord. We want to keep them. I still to this day as a teacher do not understand what the big deal was about walking on the grass. Now everybody's that not <laughs> at any Grass has become a very popular thing lately. <laughs> but I still don't get it. And I was a teacher. It was never explained. Why can't we walk on the grass? And you got one foot on the grass and you had five minutes of detention. And I go, did we crush a pill bug? Did an ant scream? And what? Why? And so there you go for an illustration that I have not yet resolved that even as a teacher. I think that I chose not to make it one of my rules. 
It was kind of, would you like to sit down on the grass? Go ahead, do that. You're right on the front of, I own this swash of, of grass. You can sit down in front of the grass in front of my classroom. Don't go over there because they'll ask you, why are you sitting and standing on the grass? You can sit on my grass. And that's the cool thing is that where there are restrictions which make no sense, you know, God says, I give you liberty, which makes a lot of sense. You're going to feel it. You're going to know that this is right. This is right that we are here tonight. It's right any time that an activity that is of the Spirit becomes a priority to us in the flesh. It's so right. It is so right. It is so right to be anywhere in the Spirit, connecting with God, even if it's not in this place, but in the Spirit. It is so right. It's good for us, necessary. Give me understanding. I'm going to keep your law. The teachings and the instructions. Not going to throw away the manual, but I will learn it in such a way in which if it is not within hand's reach, it will be within heart's reach. I can come right in and grab it. And you've seen that done before. Extraordinarily, the Word of God living and active, which is our guarantee from the Spirit, comes at that precise moment that surprises us. We all of a sudden, where did... I became a theologian in like one second of a situation. It's because the Word of God was being stored up in you and you didn't even know it. You may not even say, I only listened to some parts of your sermon, Rich, because the other time I'm moving through a thesaurus trying to figure out what it is you said. But whatever it is that you think you didn't hear the Spirit of God did receive residing within you and he brings that to pass. I can still remember sermons from my Baptist minister, illustrations that he gave, but I know one thing, I was watching the clock. I can watch the clock. I put it back there because I knew if I put it over there, you'd be doing exactly what I did when I was six years of age. <laughs> and I've saved you a lot of heartache because when you watch the clock, it changes what you feel about your spiritual time. When I watch the clock, it changes the way I feel about my spiritual time. Oh, there's not enough time. Time's up. They were just getting it, and then they started pulling out their fans, and then their stomachs were growling, and then some of them conveniently set that phone to go off as if it was from a major voice in the culture. They had to get it. It says in this, with this whole heart moving into 35, make me walk in the path of your commandments. Remember the commandments have with it, for those of you that remember, and I always refer back to this too, because I boiled it down, the power to convince and the authority to order something. So I like that. Make me. Make me. I like that too. Make me. We have a guy that actually <laughs> used that term, and you know his story, and you know how the Lord touched him. That's John. He lived a life of saying, try and make me, or make me. And so one of the effects of the Spirit on his life is that he's easily broken in talking about the things of the Lord. 
and he is somebody that has like, you know, the Lord has used him actually to soften a lot of us. It's just that I don't appreciate the softening as much as I do in him. You know, I was trying to move through a, you know, a profound piece of poetry, a song that I penned, and I started cracking up, breaking, just towards the last. And I was hoping nobody caught it, but I couldn't get away with it. You know, because in being paired with the brother who so easily has been peeled and stripped of pride that at one time was a boastful point of make me, God says, thank you for the invitation. I'll do that. And so he literally is from his tear ducts, a stream of living water. You know, you can really bathe yourself at times in his tears. He's very transparent. And we cheer him through those times because that's a genuine work of the spirit. So in this, when we talk about the commandments, make me walk in the path of your commandments. And that's really saying, Lord, I really want you to make me. In the best of what I know of you, make it happen. Because I am so prone and easily persuaded to deviate, to take the detour. I like it. I'm a traveling man, travel the world. And I want you to keep me on your path, not the other paths that are there. And that's why one of the things about this psalm is it is profound in asserting yourself to God on what you know is right to ask of the Lord, even though it has with it a ramification of, ooh, I might be suspending some of my liberties. The thing that I've discovered is that anything that I thought was a liberty and good for me, if it actually does not pass the muster of God and he chooses to honor this word that I voiced, there's no loss at all. There's always gain. We can't see it and the flesh argues against it and Satan moves to whisper and indulge us in satisfying it. But it's never what our mind even remotely considers to be a loss. It's always gain. And I really appreciate that. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, that place where there is power to convince me, that place in which there is the authority to order my life. We get bossed around by our culture and we don't like them being our boss. So we've got a higher authority and we want him to assert himself in our life and in our circumstances. Such nonsense is going on in a variety of ways. We want him to handle that. And then notice this in closing 35, I delight in it. Attitude change. Make me. Make me. And then I delight in it. It was that, you know, I, that was actually a delightful pain. Thank you, Lord. Kind of like the tooth that wiggles in your mouth. How did God make it so that we would all get through it? He made it actually a delightful pain. There are delightful pains in our life. You have to ask yourself, have you ever felt your tooth in which it, not chipped, just it's wiggling. It, it needs to come out and God has made it a delightful experience. Oh, we've tried different methods to perhaps 
eject it before it's time. I never got into that. I was a wiggler. I wanted to stay in the pain and I didn't want anybody to try to hurry me out of it. No toaster tied to a dental floss thrown over a balcony. No car door. That made no sense to me. I knew that probably what was going to happen is that my tooth would hurt me coming out of my mouth. I just, I was a wiggler. That pain felt good. So you have to ask yourself, is there anything now in your life in which God has ordained it and you've got it wrong in terms of how it should feel and you need to ask the Lord, Lord, I want to be pained in a way that I know the outcome is going to be a regenerative work. Because what springs out of it? A tooth. I know that I also had to have my wisdom teeth taken out. I look forward to the time in which I can find somebody to drill through my four wisdom teeth so I can hang it around my neck with my Hawaiian shirt. And you guys go, wow, you kind of gone tonga on this. <laughs> you skateboarding next? Maybe. When I lose a couple of pounds, you might see me skateboarding with a helmet and a hazmat suit that's been taped up and inflated to 70 pounds of air. You might see me skateboarding. But those pains also can leave holes. But the holes were necessary because there was really no place for my wisdom teeth. Glad there is a place for yours. There wasn't for me. They were creating problems. So the exchange was they would be removed and a hole would be left. But it would mend. God would fill it. I'm trying to think of who the dentist I had. I know some people that had dentists were served brilliantly by a dentist named Dr. Slaughter. I didn't have him. <laughs> but I remember the process, the pain. And I remember how the doctors wanted to soothe my pain. Here, take these. And I did, until I realized, I don't want, I don't want my pain to be bathed with that. Because I remember that it was an unnecessary soothing. And very often God would say, your choice. You can be soothed. You can be comforted in a, in a way that it'll get you through it. But you're not going to come out of it as well as if you endured for just a season. So I remember that that was a decision that I made. Perhaps a saving decision. Medications can be super powerful. And I recognized that and two occasions in which I was severely wounded, that it was easy for me not wanting to be pained. And I chose to not be pained because I trusted the Lord in being a comforter. I only took what was essential, but not anything more than that. The commandments, I delight in it. Incline my ear to your testimonies. This again is an imperative. Lord, incline my ears. The idea there in that particular word is cause me to long, cause me to long for it. So the longing heart very often can be confused with being satisfied with something that comes along. Oh good, that came along. My longing heart is satisfied. Well, they were actually just passing by and you assumed they were coming along. 
you assumed it was coming along. But I also like the other implication of this. We have inclines and declines. The incline board in exercising, and I've used this before as an illustration, is one that actually stresses you. You're inverted at a particular degree, and it forces you in order to raise up to come against resistance. We're all on an incline board, whether you know it or not. We love to skate down those ramps. Well, a lot of people do. But what I know is that this request says, Lord, incline. And that means that in that imperative, I'm willing to work at it, work with you. Willing to, I was going to point to my six-pack abs, but it's not working for an illustration. So I'll just look stupid right now. Just... Incline. But I know that's good if I do hit the incline board. Incline. And what we have also discussed is that God actually then takes an inclining position by bending low his ear to listen to what it is we're asking of him. Defying even the gravity of our situation, that which is falling down by weight. He suspends to lift us up. So I like that. Incline, notice, my heart to your testimonies. That's the way God sees it. I'm going to work, Lord, on my life to understand the way you see something. Not the way that I want to see it, but the way that you see it. And as you see it, I will come into agreement with it. I fight it. It's my tendency, and I'm saying this pluralistically, we do. But when we voice it as the psalmist has presented it, it's a sweet resignation for our benefit. The testimonies, the way that God sees something in our life, the way he sees culture, the way he sees our past, present, and our future, the way that he sees a church, the way that he sees a marriage. It's about him. And verse 36 concludes with this, and, to, and not to covetousness. And so that's really where it is we want something that it is we don't have as opposed to appreciating what God has given to us and being satisfied in it. There's nothing wrong with having a vision about, wow, that's awesome. And when that could be done with a devoted heart, I believe God fully has intended to give that to you. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. And so when you walk with the Lord, and when these things are of great value to you, then you never have to be in conflict with the Lord as to whether or not he gave that to you. He did give it to you. You give thanks to the Lord. And you also learn how to pass on things. And you pass on things because that thing that gets passed on that may have been an issue of covetousness to another person becomes an act of grace and mercy. We ended up saying goodbye to our trailer, our 17-foot trailer. You guys may not have seen it because we don't bring it out a lot. But we have brought it out on occasion privately. And we learned to do actually some cool things with it with families that actually did cool things with theirs. 
And so we released it because it's a season right now where collectively as a family, we're not sure how to allocate it for right now, Zachary. But I liked it because it was, I could get it into spaces. But I found out that actually what happened in my getting rid of it, Christy prompted my heart to call a person who looked at it over a year ago. And she is the wife of a pastor that was in this community and he went to be with the Lord and so she's single. But she's one of the most vital and uh, zealous uh, ladies that I've met as far as traveling. She was toting a 26-foot trailer. She actually wanted to have a smaller trailer, and she came up to the door and knocked, and she offered Christy this 26-foot trailer with a slide-out. And we thought, that'd be cool to have a slide-out. There's more room. And I, that's Christy's heart. I was going... What? More people. More people. Doesn't that mean my pantry doesn't have as much in it? Uh, but I was willing to do that. And then the brakes just went on it. So I get, so Christy, it was on her heart to give her a call. I gave her a call. And the next thing I know is that she's going, the Lord is so good. I've been praying for a year for that. That's awesome. So what are you going to sell yours for? Well... I talked to a guy, and I, I think I may be selling in this. I said, if you would take my counsel, I think that you're underselling. And, you know, I'm all for bargaining, but I think you're underselling that. Well, what do you think, Rich? I said, I think you ought to be here. And this is where I think I need to be on mine. Well, that isn't how much I saw on yours. I said, well, I researched the details. You weren't as detail-oriented as I was. This is actually what we paid for it. So I think we need to kind of be somewhere in here. So in talking with her, you know, she said, well, I sold it. How much did you sell it for? And she shared with me. And I thought, ooh, undersold. But here's what it challenged me to do. Undersell. To not get what it was I felt was a fair price, but to, to basically resign to what was an act of grace. Didn't even question it. So that trailer went away from her. And we sealed the deal. Today, I signed over the title. And I took what it was that she said she could handle. Because she's on a, a fixed income. And I knew that God was in it. And so she did a, well, she did a cash thing. And she said, we can sit down and count it. I said, did you count it? Uh-huh. Great, that's good enough for me. Well, what if I was wrong? Then it'll be right for me. So there you go, and I'll, I'll get that to your house tomorrow. You may say, what does this story have to do with basically this? It was the word covetousness. It's not wrong to have a desire in your heart that may ultimately manifest itself a year later. But was the, the beauty was is that she immediately said, the Lord is so good. And what did it do? It melted my heart from a transaction of thinking I'm getting less because I realized actually I'm getting more. And what she did in resigning her rig for less and what it put me in a position of humbling myself to do, we actually both got more. The word of the Lord came to pass a year after she had made inquiry about it. So 
it may not be that I have per se a trailer, but it doesn't mean that God isn't going to make a provision that satisfies a need that more greatly will be appreciated by one, two, or three, or four, or five, or six people. But if it is something where you're going, my goodness, <laughs> that's a big thing, then just know this. God will do big things in your life too. Big doesn't mean better. It means more complicated. And you know what I'm alluding to. We're looking at a handicapped motorhome, specifically designed for a person that is wheelchair bound for season. Because I have to be thinking in that pattern right now. Bigger doesn't necessarily make it better. But the bigness of God represented in what he will do for you when there's a resignation of what at one time you said you will not let go of. Pretty awesome. He's a big God. He's a big God. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. We catch Bible studies at home when worship is through in the morning, and so I'll tune in to Pastor John or Ben. And so John was teaching on something that I think he did about a year ago. And, so, and, and classically, politics came into it. And he just said, folks, the Lord is sovereign. He's supreme over everything. Turn it off. Don't look at it anymore. Throw it away. And his implication was the time that we're spent in agony wondering how things are going to go, how political parties are going to be. And he says, I've learned something. Every time I root for that guy thinking it's going to get better, it doesn't. And every time I think I'm worrying about the other guy that it's going to get really bad, it doesn't. So I just look to God saying, hey, God, you're cool. You're doing great. Something to that effect. I'm just going to trust you for everything that's going on and hopefully live to see the outcome of the results. I thought that was a great teaching. It doesn't mean that you can't be informed, but when what you are getting informed on usurps what God is communicating to you, you're just heaping upon yourself concerns and worries. We've all done it. This is a season where we all want to know what's going on, what's concerning us personally, but all of us would agree it hasn't made our life any better, has it? So we're not to be stupid, but we're also not to be so involved in collecting data that we actually can't do anything with it, but problem ourselves, vex our souls. I found the teaching to be timely. I appreciated it. It doesn't mean you can't be informed, but be better informed about what the scriptures say concerning the future and that everything points to a work that God is sovereignly in charge of to make the revelation of his son, which is what the book of Revelation is about, more evident to us. Things in the days of our disciples were as politically corrupt and as hard as anything we could imagine today, but probably with far less distractions, only specific incidences that they would have to face off with God and God alone and have him direct them on what they were to say, where they were to go, or how they were to surrender. And that wasn't necessarily by compromise. It meant, great, if my surrender means my life because I will not recant my confession of faith in Jesus Christ, have at it, boys, because I know where I'm going in the twinkling of an eye.
And so you're wondering if we'll get to uh, verse 104, aren't you? Well, Ken and Diane have a special signal that they'll receive for me. And all the, they're waiting. And the signal means three pots of coffee. And they have it down like that. And we have servants. You don't even know who they are. They're going to come to your row with coffee cups. They'll hop over anybody that has sleepy time tea, letting them rest in the Lord as we continue. So turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things. So that's a good good word. What do my eyes lean towards? What do they focus on? And, and all of us know what that may personally represent to us. Let me turn my eyes. And remember, it has to be a worthless thing, not a good thing. So make no presumption that I'm saying whatever your eyes are looking on is worthless. That's not true. There are things that your eyes ought to look at, admire, think on. And it doesn't mean that it's in conflict with God, you know, at all. And I speak concerning the needs that you have, the desires of your heart, and things that you can acquisition, relationships that are as well very important to God. Those are not worthless things. But there are things that truly are worthless. The Spirit convicts, and we just say, yeah, that's that season's over. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. And that's the way the Lord will do it. You turn your eyes away from that and you will be revived. And you'll be revived in his way. Establish your word, verse 38, to your servant. And that establish means just like a business that opens up. This is the set date of this and the Lord will set a new date on what he's doing presently, and he'll establish it. And you're not going to see it firebombed. You're not going to see it protested because you've made that transaction with God and he establishes it. He says, good. That's a deal that I will keep with you. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. And that's why David, when we move back into our teaching in Second Chronicles, was able to leave Jerusalem weeping and was able to tell those guys, the priests and the prophet, the ark is not coming with me. It's going there. Do you realize that I had one of the greatest parades on the face of the earth, bringing the ark from the camp, from the outskirts of town, where it had been rescued from the hands of the Philistines? I'm not... I'm not going to apologize for that procession. And though I am now saddened in this procession, it does not negate what that was about. The ark stays there. God's going with me regardless. But if things change and he finds disfavor in me, then so be it, David would say. But you're better off serving me by taking the ark back where it belongs. And so we looked at that in the implications of what very often we feel we must have, forgetting the fact that we have it. He's here. He's here. And it may be a journey that has weeping, and we've already seen that David encounters some very disrespectful people. It was a very hard time for him, but he made a wise decision. Send the ark back, and you guys hang there and conduct priestly services because my heart is in the city that God promised me. I'm coming back to it. Unless God is exceedingly displeased with me, 
I'm coming back. If he is exceedingly displeased, displeased with me, I'll accept the consequences. But right now, though I am in a procession, not of joy and celebration, but of deep sorrow, I'm going to take that sorrow. I'm going to cross the Kidron Brook. I'm going past the, the grove of olive trees that I have meditated in and prayed through, the very ones that Jesus himself would find great solace in, great revelation there, and I'm going to return because I believe that's what God said. I'm going to return. So revive me in your way. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread. This is basically, man, there's a bunch of meanies out there. I can't take care of them all. And God says, I know you can't, but I can't. And that reproach is not fair to you. Remember, David did have some incidences in which people would say, rightly, we accuse you. But David would entrust himself on accusations that may well be that which he could agree to. We all have agreeable, reproachable, historic boo-boos, which every single one of us could have as front-page news for slander. All of us do. And so David says, I can't stop it. It's happening but Lord, for those who are doing it, and they're doing it on the premise of simply being malicious and keeping me down and trying to separate me from you, then Lord, I'm going to trust you as one who will turn away my reproach, which I dread. So we face off at times with reproach, but the word here is that, but Lord, you can turn it away. As it comes at me, as it perhaps presses into me, as it perhaps is broadcast against me, you can turn it. And what does that mean? There's new beginnings that God grants us. Every single one of us have had a new beginning. And sometimes it's a new, new beginning and a new, 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 new beginning. Who would know? God knew. He would know and has known, and he wants us to know that new beginnings are not worn out by punch cards. New mercies each day mean a new beginning as you move along the way. Very important. That's called grace. Your judgments are good. Remember, judgments are the duties of fair counsel, fair dealings. We want to be treated fairly, and God says that's precisely what I do. I will treat you fair, reasonable, because of what? My love. See, sometimes we say, well, that's not fair. But that's because what we want in that is a justice that jumps that line. Justice and judgment are very similar, but judgment usually means a punctuation to what others are claiming they want. I want justice. No, you want judgment. You don't want what's fair and reasonable. You want something harsh and final from God in that person's life, in that situation. That's what you want. You don't want justice. But when the judgment word is used here, it echoes back to what justice is because God's not going to punctuate it and compromise what he means. His judgment will render conclusively one day, two points, 
you're forgiven and these charges are not going to be held against you and you will enter into a seat of judgment called Bhima. You will be rewarded. Or secondly, you have neglected and refused my word, my provision for forgiveness, judgment being suspended now will now be satisfied in you being removed from me. It's a choice you made. I'm honoring the choice that you made. It's not my will that any should perish, but it's a choice you've made, resisting me to the last breath you have, and that will be for some an order of their eternal situation. And we, I think that we have at times difficulty connecting with that. And the reason being is that when we know ultimately what God's going to do and has done for us, and we try to consider what that other means, it's hard for us at times to have hearts that break for people that are so malicious, so nasty, but not everybody's malicious, not everybody's nasty, not everybody's evil. But they are ignorant, and they are good people who have not yet accepted the beautiful, easy invitation of being saved by grace. Not through works that any man can boast, but on the premise of faith. And that's why our hearts need to be you know, touched of realizing that there are people with beautiful dispositions and what they lack is just that one decision to make on who gave them that beautiful disposition, but how that will not save them. What will save them is the beautiful Son of God who has made that provision. Your judgments are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. I long for the close examination of your eyes upon me. Adam and Eve didn't for a season. But that's really what it's inviting God to do. I long for you to look into my life. Now, that can be actually better appreciated if you say, I love it when whom I love looks longingly into my life, not to find fault with me, but to examine me for the good that they are rewarded by. See, that's actually one of the draws of the heart, is to be rewarded by somebody who looks into your life and the details of your life and accentuating the goodness of your life, not the, not the faults of your life, but the goodness of your life. And this is what was the assurance right now. There is a time in which inspection is necessary, but reflection from God to look into your life and you're inviting him to look at the good things of your life. Because when God is invited to look in the good things of your life, you will then look into the lives of others who easily find fault and you will see good in them. You'll be able to pronounce that. I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. All right there. Verses 33 through 40. The Lord has chosen to allow you to be revived. And a closure on this teaching. See, it wasn't hard to get to 140. It's just going to take a long time.